know the drill. Please turn back to the portion of scripture we read just a a few moments ago. Uh, Let's turn back to James and chapter 1. James chapter 1. I'll read verse 1 again. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greeting. So fairly uh, recently in our evening services, we've looked together at uh, the book of Ezra. And Ezra's perhaps, arguably, one of the most overlooked books in the Old Testament. Well, tonight we begin a new sermon series, and we do so in perhaps one of the most overlooked books of the New Testament. Uh, the book of James. Now, why, why is it overlooked? Why, why, is, why is James an unpopular book? Well, part of the reason for that might be the fact that James contains a whole lot of commands. There's a lot of instruction in James. There's an awful lot of imperatives in the book. And, and perhaps that doesn't sit well with the modern church. You know, the modern church, we don't like appearing in any way legalistic. We don't like appearing harsh or demanding. So that might well be at the root of it. But hopefully tonight what we'll see, and hopefully throughout our sermon series in James, what we'll see is that James isn't in any way a legalistic book. James is a book about Jesus Christ. James is a book seeking to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. And it's a book that's primary theme is how believers are to live for Jesus Christ. So the intention tonight, folks, is to do what we did a couple of weeks ago when we began the book of Genesis. Do you remember that? The intention is to have an overview of the book, but all the while just keeping one eye on the first verse of the letter. So an overview, an introduction, but all the time we're going to keep one eye on the first verse. And we'll do that tonight by looking at just three points together. Okay, three points tonight. So let's make a start. Let's get into this and let's consider our first point, and that is the authorship of James, okay? The authorship of James. Now, if you were to come round and visit the manse, you would find just now that our front room is covered in new baby cards. Everywhere you look, it's fantastic. There are all these pink cards welcoming Juliet into the world. And it was the same when we had our first child, when we had Colin. Our living room in Scotland was covered in cards. But 
there was a mistake in one of the cards. Um, somebody sent us a card, and it looked fine. You know, the envelope was great, and it was correctly written. And then you opened it up, and inside it said this. It said, to Andy and Catherine, congratulations on the birth of Colin. And that was it. The person had forgotten to sign the card. The person had forgotten to put their name on it. And, of course, that left Catherine and I trying to have to play sort of Sherlock Holmes and, and look at the handwriting and look at the postcode and try to work out who had sent it. And that is the sort of mystery that scholars have been faced with with the book of James, with the letter of James. Because... Look at it. Although the author gives his name in verse 1, doesn't he? He says, James, a servant of God. He doesn't, he doesn't expand on that, does he? He doesn't elaborate. So we're left with a question. Scholars have been left with a question. Which James is this? Which James is it? And over the years, some people have suggested different things. Some have suggested it's James, you know, the brother of John. The son of Zebedee, or it's James, the son of Alphaeus. But nowadays, in, um, let's say, in our circles, if you like, reform circles, in conservative circles, there's a general consensus that this book is written by who? This book is written by James, the brother of Jesus. It's written by James, the brother of Jesus. Now, some people would disagree with that. They would say no chance. They would say that the Greek in the letter of James is far too advanced for it to have been written by a carpenter's son. But that overlooks two things. That overlooks, firstly, that there was a lot of interaction between Jews and Greeks in Galilee at the time of Jesus. And it overlooks something else. It also overlooks the possibility that James was present at Pentecost when all these gifts of of language were handed out. So James could easily, folks, he could easily have been proficient enough in Greek to have written this letter. And then there's further evidence that James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this book. Okay? Acts 15 It records a letter written by James and the Council of Jerusalem. And in that letter, we have the same phrases, we have the same concerns as this letter we've got in front of us this morning. This this evening, rather. And then think about this, folks. That the book of James is written by the brother of Jesus. It makes sense of the fact that the author doesn't expand on who he was. You see, James, the brother of Jesus, was an incredibly well-known figure throughout the Christian world. He, He didn't need to say who he was. He didn't need to expand on it. He didn't need to explain who was writing this letter. By just writing James, a servant of God, the recipients would have known exactly who was writing this. 
they would know that it was James, the brother of Jesus. So this letter is written by the brother of the Lord. But let's move on a wee bit and let's think about who this James was. Who, who was James? What was he like? Well, to be honest, we get a fairly negative picture of James throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, don't we? You know, John tells us that uh, Jesus' brothers mocked Jesus. They mocked the Lord. And then we're told this really stark and, and difficult truth that even Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. Isn't that something? Even Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. Now, is that not most poignantly seen at the cross? You see, even though his brother is being executed, and even though his mother is there and she is upset, And she needs support, doesn't she? And she needs comforting. Even there, we read nowhere in Scripture, in none of the Gospels, that James was present at Calvary. So it starts out pretty bleak, doesn't it? It's a pretty, pretty bleak picture of James. But things change. We read in Scripture that James becomes a Christian, that God works in his life, And we read that James is witness to the risen Jesus Christ. But perhaps tonight, for tonight's purposes, the most important thing we see is James's rapid rise to prominence within the Christian church. You see, the man, he becomes a believer, and then in the blink of an eye, almost, you know, in just a couple of years... He is a church leader. The man becomes, in a very short space of time, he becomes a key player in the Council of Jerusalem that we read about in Acts. Now let me ask you tonight, folks, what do you think about that? What do you think when you read about this dramatic spiritual development in James. And the fact that just a few years he goes from becoming a believer right through to a picture of deep spiritual growth. What do you think? Do you find that a challenge to your own spiritual life? Let me ask you, have you matured greatly as a Christian in the last couple of years? Have you? As you look back on the last few months and the last few years, is it a picture of dramatic and drastic and exponential growth in your spiritual life? Is it? Well, if not, let me ask you to do something. Let me ask you to really wholeheartedly embrace this sermon series in the book of James. Commit yourselves to coming out every Sunday night. Let me ask you to read the book of James this week. Will you do that? Now this is a short book. 
what was it, five very, very short chapters. That'll take you 20 minutes tops. And let me ask you to pray. Pray that through this sermon series, that God develops us, that God matures us, and that he would grow us to a point of deep, deep spiritual growth. You see, look at James. He doesn't... He doesn't open this letter in the most kind of grand and grandiose way. He doesn't say, look at me, it's James, it's the brother of the Lord. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even do what Peter does or what Paul does and set out his credentials. He doesn't set out his authority for writing. What does he say? He says, I am a slave. I am nothing but a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, let's pray that through this sermon series that God matures us. And let's pray that he matures us to a point where we see and grasp that we have to be slaves, servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the authorship of James. Okay, let's move on. Let's consider our second thing. Let's consider the content of James. The content of James. And we'll consider here the topics and then the controversy. The topics and the controversy. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone into Waterstones or your favourite bookshop. And I don't know if you've ever bought a book, a novel, and you've gone to the to Costa or wherever you want to read and you've sat down and you've started reading the novel and you've been so gripped by it because it seems to be speaking directly to your situation. A novel that grasps you because it seems to be speaking to you. Well, I've been there as a teenager, as a bit of a rebellious teenager, an itchy feet and a desperation to travel. I remember buying, what was it? Uh, Jack Kerouac's On the Road. And I remember being absolutely blown away by it. I thought, this is a book that's speaking to me. Well, friends, that's what we've got tonight. That's what we've got with James. This book couldn't be any more relevant to our congregation. Just think about it. Just think about some of the topics that James deals with here. You know, he starts off and he's talking about trials and he's talking about testing. And think about our congregation. You know, we've got people with family members who are ill. We've got people in our congregation who are ill. We've got people here who are dry, spiritually, spiritually fatigued. We've got people here who are worried about their future. They're worried about their jobs. Ours is a congregation going through trials. Then think about what else James talks about. He moves on. He talks about rich and poor. He talks about the problems with money. Think about where we are. We're a congregation smack bang in the city of London. We are surrounded by millionaires. But yet there are so many people who are struggling to get by materially. This is a relevant book. It's a book that talks about prayer. 
It's a book that talks about how Christians should speak to each other. It's a book about obedience. It's a book about submission. It is a book that is relevant to us. It's relevant to us today. So the topics. But what about the controversy with James? What's that all about? Well, I don't know if you've had the, well, I call it a privilege. Yeah, I'll call it a privilege. I don't know if you've had a privilege of ever uh, studying any church history or if you've read any church history books. But if you have, folks, then you will know that the reformer, Martin Luther, that he was far from a fan of the book of James. In fact, I don't suppose we could say that he hated the book of James, but he did call it an epistle of straw, which I am guessing is not meant as a compliment. So what was Luther's beef with the book of James? Well, two main problems. The first part of the problem is he saw James as being at variance with the letters of Paul. Okay? He saw it as opposing Paul. Because he saw Paul as speaking about justification by faith alone. And then Luther turns to James and what does he read? Chapter 2, verse 17. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So Luther chucks out James. Luther shuns James. He sees it as promoting salvation by works. But was the guy right? Was Luther right? Well, absolutely not. And what we've got to grasp, the key to it all, is the fact that Paul and James are asking different questions. Paul was addressing the question, how is salvation experienced? Whereas James is asking, how is salvation recognized? How is salvation experienced? How is it recognized? They're asking different questions. So that was part of Luther's problem. The second part of Luther's complaint was that he read James and he said, there's not enough Jesus here. You see, Jesus isn't quoted. And he said there wasn't enough talk. There wasn't enough meat about Jesus. So is that a legitimate complaint? Well, again, no, it's not. Luther had it wrong. Because you see, friends, and The prayer is that we see this all throughout the sermon series. Jesus is present from the first word of the book of James right to the end. Everything that James says in this letter, in this epistle, it is based on the foundation of Jesus Christ. All the way through, there are shadows of the Sermon on the Mount. One commentator, he's counted up I think it's 60 different parallels, 60 different links with Jesus' teaching 
in the synoptic gospels. There's no question about it. It's not up for debate. This is a book about Jesus. This is a book about God's grace. So given that, is there a practical challenge in that for for your life and my life tonight? Well, there is, friends. Because you see, the teaching of The teachings of Jesus, they were such a foundational part of James's life that even when he wasn't directly talking about his saviour, what he said was still rooted in him. Even when he wasn't directly quoting Jesus, everything he said was still rooted in him. Now, Is that the case for us, do you think? Is it? When we're talking to our friends, even if we are not talking about Jesus Christ, is there, in our words, a a natural outpouring of Christ-centeredness? Is there grace in what we see? Would our friends, would the people around us, would they recognize Jesus' love and Jesus' teaching in our words? If not, again, let me see. Let's use use this sermon series as a starting point. Let's use this sermon series as a springboard. And let's listen intently to what James has to say to us. Let's listen intently to what God has to say to us about how we should live and how we should speak in a way that communicates our Saviour. So the authorship of James, the content of James, let's conclude with the recipients of James. The recipients of James. Now we'll do something slightly unusual just now. In this last point, it's not too unusual. In this last point, what we'll do is we'll have two sets of three things going on here. We will have three observations and then have three implications. So first, three observations about the recipients of this letter. You ready for them? Three quick observations about who the letter was written to. One, the letter was written to Jews. It was written to Jews. We see that in first in, in, in the first verse here, don't we? It says, to the twelve tribes. The 12 tribes, 12 sons of Jacob, it is written to Jews. And that's apparent elsewhere. In chapter 2, James uses the, the word for synagogue. And all the way through the letter, all the way through the five chapters of the letter, he talks about the Mosaic law. It's written to Jews. Okay, second thing here. It's written to Jews. It's written to believing Jews. It's written to Christian See, James calls his readers here time and time again. He says, 
brothers, dear brothers. And then he also says, he calls them believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're Jews. They are Christian Jews. The third observation is that they are Christian Jews who have been dispersed throughout the known world. You see verse 1 again. It says, To the twelve tribes who are scattered among the nations. So think back a couple of weeks. Think back a couple of months. Think Israel. Remember what happened there? The Jews, the people of God, some of them stayed in Babylon. Some of them moved. They were separated. Okay? Then on top of that, think of Acts chapter 8. What do we read in Acts chapter 8? We read that a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered. Scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Do you see, friends, the picture that's been... This is James... The Lord's brother. And we've got him writing to Jews, Christian Jews, believing Jews that are scattered throughout the known world. So what? What does that mean for us? Three short implications. One. That all means... That this letter here is written to small groups of believers just like us. It's written to small house churches that were scattered across the region. James isn't writing here. He's not writing to this grand, gihugimous church somewhere. He's writing to a small group of believers. Second thing, the recipients were people who were looked down upon by society. You see, they were Jews. Now that is bad enough, but they were Christian Jews. They were a people under suspicion. They were a people who faced antagonism from all sides. It's another point of reference for believers in the UK 21st century. And then the third and the most important implication here. Think about this. This was a letter written to people in a land that was not their own It was written to a group of people in a land that was not their own. Now, again, think about how that relates to us. Think about how that relates to our multicultural congregation. You see, so many many people here tonight, certainly so many people in our morning services, they are not born and bred Londoners, are they? We are, in general, a congregation of people who are scattered from their homeland. And we're people who are strangers in a foreign land. And crucially, most importantly, 
We are people trying to live for Jesus Christ in an alien environment. Do you see it? Do you see how applicable and how appropriate and how relevant the book of James is to our congregation? Okay, friends, let's let's end just with this. If your Bibles are open, what's the last word of verse 1? Do you see it? The last word. It's the word greetings. Greetings. Now that doesn't seem unusual, but it's not the normal word for greetings in the Greek. That word there could be translated, it has the sense of joy. It has the sense of rejoicing. Now... How can James begin his letter like that? Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to a people who are really suffering. He's writing to a a, a people going through trials. He's writing to people who are being persecuted. How can he start off striking this note of, of joy and rejoicing? How can he do that? Well, he can do that, friends, because of one of the main themes of the book that we've not mentioned tonight. You see, all through these five chapters, there is a deep sense of expectation. There is a sense of anticipation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. James says in this book, he talks about Jesus being at the door. He says that Jesus is about to return. And folks, tonight, if you keep that in mind, then you're going to be able to deal with anything. Any trial that comes your way it is a temporary trial. Any suffering that you're going through just now, it is just fleeting. Because soon, very soon, Jesus Christ is going to return. And he is going to take all of his people, us, aliens in a foreign land. He is going to take us home to be with him. So no wonder, no wonder James can greet his readers. And he can do so with joy. Let's pray.